This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bearers. Rewilding the world is an important step in combating climate change. Recreating ecosystems and habitat can't happen soon enough. Fortunately, a lot of solutions are already available, including the Miyawaki method of using mini-forests to reforest the world. Mini-Forest Revolution, using the Miyawaki method to rapidly rewild the world, was released in June 2022 by Chelsea Green Publishing. Author Hannah Lewis shares the ins and outs of what the Miyawaki method looks like through a series of stories of communities who have built mini-forests, the supporting science, and past writings and conversations with the late Akira Miyawaki, who developed this method. The book is a journey of knowledge and solutions, and one that will be loved by readers who enjoy biographies, nature journals, or just want to learn about a reliable climate solution. Author Hannah Lewis joined Defender Radio to discuss writing the book, why the Miyawaki method matters, and how people all over the world can help kickstart the mini forest revolution. To start out talking about the book, Mini Forest Revolution, and the Miyawaki Method, which I, I hope I'm getting quite, uh, close to accurate, I was wondering, I guess maybe, how did you first come across this? I mean, the, the, the book itself tells the story of the questions I want to ask you, which is what makes it a wonderful read, um, as you learn also about the Miyawaki Method. But I'd love if you could share just sort of the, the brief, how did you end up sort of being from Minneapolis and then learning about this Japanese agricultural or, or ecology solution. While in France. <laughs> While in France. By the way, that like paragraph <laughs> is the best pitch for ever moving to France that I have oh, ever read yeah. in my life. The pirates does it all, doesn't Yes, it? <laughs> right? A former pirate cove? Yes, please. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I when I moved to France, my partner is French. That's why we moved there. Um, I started working for an organization um, based in the U.S. in Cambridge called Biodiversity for a Livable Climate. And um, I had wanted to get involved in something climate action related. And I really liked I really liked the nature nature based solutions um, approach. And so my job there is to read and write about the importance of ecosystems for healthy, healthy, expansive ecosystems for um, regulating water cycles and carbon cycles and um, keeping keeping the land cool. So I really enjoy that work, but it also made me start itching to do something on the land to restore ecosystems. And so I was really primed when uh, I, just a short article across my screen about a Milwaukee project in the city of Nantes, which was not too far from where I was living, a few hours. Mm -hmm. And it was a it was a couple, and they were planting a 200 square square meter um, forest, a native dense biodiverse forest, sort of in response to a road expansion near their house. Mm -hmm. And that sounded so cool because it was just, it was, it was a couple 
um, along with you know friends and local volunteers that were taking this on. And they were planting not just trees, but they were planting an ecosystem. And the idea that the ecosystem would um, get set in place and then it would become uh, self-sustaining and it would be a, you know, a real forest, a real dense forest, wildlife habitat, um, and that they could do that. And it was, was really appealing to me. So I contacted them and learned more about it and then just promptly proposed it to the school where my kids were attending. And just little by little, the town kind of, I found other allies in the town and, and, we, and we got together and proposed it to the um, city council, town council. So it eventually got proposed and planted with the schools where my kids were attending. So that was, that was sort of half of, the, half of my discovery of the Neowaka method. And the other half was then reaching out to the group in Paris that was planting mini forests and elsewhere in Europe, elsewhere in the world um, and hearing their stories, why they were doing it and what kind of difference they thought it was making. And so all of those came together in my book. And it's, it's, I really enjoyed reading the book because it's, as I kind of noted, it's, you're telling the story of you learning about this and the people you met who knew uh, Akira Miyawaki. And that makes it so much easier to connect to the information. So it's not a textbook of this is what the vegetation you need and this is the exact process. And books like that exist and procedures like that exist. But this is the story of a journey of knowledge, which is the greatest story for me always of how you learned and what you learned and who taught you these things and why they matter. Uh, and it makes it so digestible and really follows a lot of lovely storytelling traditions. Um, and I'm going to be going in and out of both writing questions and actual mini forest questions. So, uh, at the beginning though, what makes the big difference between what many of us have done and, and you sort of, you know, going out and planting trees, right? But so many of us have seen that around our communities or done that. We went out and planted a tree. What makes this concept different, uh, from that? You, you noted that there's additional things planted. Yeah, so oftentimes when we see trees planted, we see one kind of medium-sized tree planted on its own in a big hole in the ground. Um, and then, you know, several, several paces on another, another tree that looks just the same as just as big planted in another big hole. And so those, those trees are, are planted just sort of as individuals, just here's a tree. And the difference with the Milwaukee method is that you're, you're um, you're not missing the forest for the trees. You're planting you're planting trees in relation to one another in the way that they would grow in an ecosystem. So, um, and you're planting them really densely, three plants per square meter or square yard, um, and um, not just not just one kind of tree and not just one size of tree, but you're planting a really wide mix. You know, anywhere from ten to 30 or 40 species or even more. And you're planting tall canopy trees, smaller trees and small shrubs. So in that square meter where you're putting three plants, you're, you're generally doing three plants of different sizes. So you're using the horizontal space on the land and you're also using the vertical space as they grow up. As they grow up, they'll be occupying different layers of what becomes the forest. And so 
the, the denseness there stimulates interactions among the plants. And one of those interactions is that they're, um, they're competing, they're, you know, they're, they're small at the beginning and they're competing to, to use that space and get up to the sun. Um, and they're, they're feeding the soil with carbon compounds, which builds the microorganisms in the soil, which, which then helps the plants access nutrients and water and um, improves the soil generally. And then the other thing that's cool is that a forest is a place that has, an, has, a, has a perimeter and it has a canopy and it has an interior space. And when, when you have a forest, the, you create, you create a, well, there is a microclimate on the inside because the, the direct sunlight is blocked out. The wind is, is blocked to a certain extent and, um, you know, and the heat from the outside is, is limited. So you get cooler, moister interior and that protects the soil. And it also kind of protects the, you know, everything else in there from, from, ex, you know, any extremes that you would have outside the forest. Yeah. It's, it's impressive how many different elements there are uh, involved, but at the same time, how simplistic and lovely it is in concept, because it, the, what you're describing in on one hand is again, it's this complex ecosystem Kickstarter um, it's almost like getting your starter yeast in a bowl or something. It's, it's the goo that's going to yeah. become everything else. And yeah. then at the same time, you're using terms that for me, hearing from an artistic side of, yeah, you're using your nice levels and you're looking at having some diversity across and maybe a nice diagonal line to show. And it, it's just interesting. And I get that feeling as well from your writing that uh, Akira Miyawaki was not just an ecologist, but had this artistry and philosophy that very much surrounded a lot of his work through his life. Yeah, he he was he was a really big thinker. I mean, obviously, he was a big he was a man of action. He planted nearly 3000 forests in over a 50 year career wow. and he planted into his 90s. I mean, or he he was active into his 90s um, and so he he was just really truly engaged in the world, and his vision was not only to restore ecosystems, forest ecosystems, but to to teach people about forests and to help people, you know, recognize the ecosystems that they are a part of, uh, that we are a part of, to recognize the main tree species in the in the forest of our area to understand that we are part of nature and that we depend on nature and that we owe it to one another to help to restore nature, to, to restore these ecosystems that sustain us. And yeah, he, well, yeah, I, I really, I really, really grew to admire him. Yeah. <laughs> Probably can tell in the writing, I'm, I grew to be very fond of him. Well, and it's again, it's the stories of other people telling their interactions and the way they learned from him. That's to me, that's sort of the a measure of greatness is the stories that the person, not friends necessarily, not family, but people who just crossed paths with professionally, the warmth with which they speak about that experience and how it changed them is again it's it's a, I, lovely is the word that keeps coming to mind and as a writer too i should have a better word than that but it gives me it's a nice warm feeling to read this and as is often the case in environmental books there's an expectation of horror 
at this stage in our existence. And it's hard uh, to sometimes dig into this stuff. And, and this is as someone whose job it is, as you will experience, to read primarily, uh, to read about all of the things going on. And it weighs on you. So to read books like this, where it's, there are bad things and we're not going to ignore them, but we're going to talk about solutions and really yeah. dive into that. It, it seems great. Yeah, and and so going back to Milwaukee, I think he he said and he re reiterated this a lot. You know, we 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 don't really have the right to give in to tragic outcomes. We don't, mm -hmm. you know, we're here. We're here. We have energy in this world. We have we have uh, you know time and a place in this world, and we can give back. And so you know, working together to restore ecosystems is is a really meaningful way to give back, not only to the ecosystems and the people living today, but to, to the future generations that will be here. And I think that really resonated with me because, because there are things we can do. You know, there really, there really are, they may not be enough, they, <laughs> but, but uh, they're, but there's something. And, and on the other hand, they may be, they may be what's needed. So, um, well, it's a bit, it's a large scale issue that there isn't a single answer to, unfortunately, um, exactly. while yeah. many people will profess they have the one, uh, like most things in life, it is a problem that came from multifaceted complex systems, and it's going to require complex and multifaceted solutions. Uh, and yeah. one of the ways to talk about this, uh, we'll talk about big and then maybe micro, but you've got an element in here on forest seawalls and in our emails before this interview i had mentioned that some of this reminds me of hugo culture which i did an episode on in the last season of the show which is taking small mounds of natural uh, vegetation and debris and whatnot and creating opportunities to plants and you, you immediately responded with a study uh that showed an example of how that was sort of used i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because i think it's such a cool idea that once i read about it seemed really 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 obvious hmm. the, the idea of planting on mounds Day. Well, on mounds, as well as um, the impact of using the placements, I would think. So not only saying like we need to find ways to build effectively, but then where we can build effectively now allows prevention of certain natural disaster or at least uh, uh, slows some response from climate change. Yeah. Uh, so flooding yeah. or severe uh, uh, issues related to air quality and stuff. Yeah, well, so what, what Milwaukee's vision was that um, there was there was a major tsunami in um, in Japan, uh, just off the northern northeast shore, and it, it was devastating. Um, and so right when that happened, um, Miyawaki and his colleague, Doryu uh, Hyoki, who had built a mini forest at his at his Buddhist temple. Uh, a few years prior, they they went and looked at the devastation and and made a lot of observations and thought about, well, this could happen again. And why don't we take this opportunity to, you know, to to restore all of this devastated land with with native forests. And so the idea was to plant a, I think it was like 300 kilometer kilometer 
forest wall. So a, you know, a forest basically on a mound of land going up the shore, um, going up the coastline. And, um, and so the idea was to take all the rubble, all the debris that had been created by the tsunami, chunks of cement, planks of wood, and anything non-toxic, and put, put that in the ground to build the mound. They needed to do something with all of that debris. Mm -hmm. And so um, here was actually a very useful thing to do with it. So, so build, so build this long sort of uh, alley where, where you're, where you're mounting up the debris and, and then you pile topsoil and, and earth on top of it. And so you get a pretty high mound and then you plant the forest on top of that. And it was for the, it was preferable for several reasons. One was just generally, it's nice to have a well-drained area for the, for the, we're planting a forest like that you don't want water stagnating anywhere and that was something that Milwaukee always emphasized was planting on a at least a small mound but then if you you know so the so in a tsunami situation the the water would crash over that mound and then the trees there would would hold would hold the land in place with their deep roots and their mm -hmm. interconnected interconnected deep roots and their holding the soil like that. And, and so instead of cars washing and other things washing out to sea, uh, you have the trees there sort of blocking it. And, and a lot of cars did wash out to sea after the tsunami was, was receding. So, yep. yeah, so, it, it, and it would, but it would also slow the tsunami from, from coming into the inland area because it was a high wall. So people would have a little more time to evacuate. So it in what I learned in interviewing was they, they did a few of those, but it was really an unfamiliar idea. And um, so instead what was put in was in, in much of that area was a, you know, concrete, really, really tall and deeply reinforced concrete wall <laughs> that went on the coastline to, to, to kind of serve a similar effect, but completely different. Well, one of them creates an ecosystem and the other one kills it. So yeah. <laughs> interesting cross purposes, um, but interesting to see the idea played out. And again, it makes more sense because concrete and this will skip back to this, but in talking about reducing heat domes or urban heat islands and all of that kind of stuff, we're trying to get rid of concrete. We're trying to put green on top of concrete because of how much better it is for us and the environment and the ecosystem. So it's an interesting choice to go in the other direction, but time will will share a bit with us. Um, and in talking about the scope, uh, in the forward from Paul Hawken to the book, there is reference to, um, but, but I'm going to pull this up so I can read elements of it, uh, estimated 300, 3,300 billion tons of carbon held in terrestrial ecosystem, four times more carbon than is in the atmosphere of CO in the form of CO2. Um, if we increase in the next 30 years, the amount of carbon held in land by 9%, we will have brought back to earth all of the carbon dioxide emitted by coal, gas and oil combustion, deforestation and extractive agriculture since 1800. Um, and Effectively, the argument is that if we were to take, here's the rest of it, skipping ahead a little, uh, 5 billion acres of degraded land on Earth and use one-fifth of it to become mini forests, as described by this method, we could return 
all of the carbon emitted in the atmosphere from 1800 until now. That is, I, I can't imagine the size of those numbers. They, they don't, they, they can't be processed by my brain. Um, yeah, so I, I right. Like, so I guess, sir, two part question here is one, why aren't we doing that right now? And two, on a much more local scale, how do we start implementing? Because I think that's the other thing is this is one of those ideas that on a massive scale is world saving, but it also can very much be community saving as well and provide a lot of resilience and a lot of ecosystem boons. So maybe, you know, we'll go from one extreme to the other of why aren't we, or are we, or how can we prompt our, our leaders and organizations to take on that kind of a task of 5 billion acres of degraded land being turned into beneficial ecosystems. Yeah. Well, what, so um, a, one thing that that's going on is that we have this biodiversity crisis. We have this loss of ecosystems and, and ecosystems are, are made out of carbon. So it's, it's like the most elegant solution to rebuild biodiversity, rebuild ecosystems with the carbon that is in the, in the atmosphere in excess. You know, we, that carbon's not a bad thing. It's what life is made out of. And yep. so we need it down here on the land to, uh, to re, you know, to, to expand living ecosystems and the biosphere. Um, so, so that's just, that's just a, a pretty cool concept. And I think the role of, of many forests in cities, there's one, so there's one aspect where you, you know, what's cool about it is that you can do it at a community scale. You can, you know, one person can say, hey guys, you know, hey school, let's do this um, with our students and parents and teachers on this land right next to the school. And bingo, it's not such a gigantic, enormous project that needs the UN's involvement or something. <laughs> so, and, and at the same time, what you get is you get the, the connection to nature, that the people who are there planting it, caring for it, watching it mature, get to experience and learn. Um, you get the cooling of the area. So, you know, if you, um, if you have like, you know, in, in several places you have schoolyards that are just concrete or asphalt yep. and the kids go out there on a hot school day and that's that's sort of exhausting and tiring to play in such a hot environment and so so you get so you get that immediate benefit for the kids and also if it's in a polluted area you're cleaning the air so lots of lots of little benefits like that that are local and immediate um, and then when you start thinking bigger picture you can think about like larger scale ecosystem restoration and protection projects in larger areas. But then through, through cities, what one thing we need to preserve global biodiversity is connectivity, connectedness between the ecosystems so that animals can migrate so that they can find their way from one ecosystem to another so that they can mix with other populations genetically. Um, and that's essential for those larger ecosystems. So we, what we can do in cities is, is um, try to create lots of these little mini forests that, that help, help animals traverse that urban, that human matrix of the city to get from one side to the other and into a more rural, rural or natural environment. 
Well, and I think it's fascinating, too, because we start looking at um, the variety of options. So a mini forest is an a, a incredible way of doing this. I've also done an interview for this season on uh, green roofs. So creating little ecosystems, and it's arguably similar to what we'll see on a wildlife overpass or the corridors where it's we're just making it go from one side to the other effectively in a healthy ecological way. And the, the benefits of it are just immediate. It's incredible. So one of the things I, I've read a lot of really interesting stuff, and one of the examples was a project like this starting as a sound barrier. And I thought that was a great idea. And again, growing up in the suburbs of Toronto, um, it's just concrete walls next to the highway. That's what they did when I was a kid. I, I can, I, it's a distinct color and everything. They're still there. Anyone who's ever driven down the QEW knows exactly what I'm talking about. And it's like, okay, well, we're not getting rid of those, but why not line them with green? Why not build forests or mini forests just on the other side of them with little holes to let, you know, like we, we've, there's so many tools that we can use. Mm -hmm. Um, it's very interesting. And the way it starts is not always with, I want a mini forest. It's, I want sound protection, or I want reduction from pollution, or I want reduction from heat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and road, roadways is a good example because those are sort of inherently connectors, um, connectors, you know, they're, they're, uh, and so we can take advantage of the fact that there's already, um, a, you know, a, a, a linear space there that at least smaller animals can use to to move around the landscape if we're if we're planting on on roadways there's there's so much opportunity there and also yeah the double benefit there of blocking the noise and the pollution from um from the neighboring yeah. residential areas it's also a traffic calming measure, which I think is a great idea as well. And in Hamilton, we've had a lot of problems. This came up in my other interview as well on green roofs. And it just, I, I got to email city council later, all of the stuff I found out about over these two interviews, because I feel like it's a potential solution for that. And they'll ignore me again. But um, is there a scale at which this has to be done? Because I feel like that's what, whenever we talk about environmental solutions, there's an inherent uh, uh, pulling back of, well, what's this going to cost me? Or how long do I have to, like, do I have to do my entire yard? Can I do just, you know, three square meters in a corner and will that help? Or do I have to completely read landscape everything and spend thousands of dollars? H how can people get started in this on a very individual scale too? Well, um, interestingly, uh, in the in the Netherlands, where they've got a big project where they work with schools and build, you know, the tennis court size mini forest with schools, and they've done that in, I um, it, by the end of this year, I think it'll be 230 schools wow. throughout the country, or, or maybe more. But the the you know people have this has sort of clicked for lots of people, and so yeah, lots of people have been asking that exact question, and so they they are they developed a model to do kind of a, a backyard mini forest garden. So oh. you, you know, they, they sort of supply kind of a starter kit. I'm not sure what's all in the kit, but, but the idea is that, yeah, you can do this in your backyard in a, in a garden size environment. And, you know, it's, it's, it's even less like a real forest than a tennis court size yeah. <laughs> uh, grove of trees is, but I mean, it's still, you're still, it's, it's still, a huge load better than that size of lawn, which only has one layer of vegetation and 
you know, not many species have had. So, and, and, and again, it's, it's a way to learn, you know, because if you're going to do the Miyawaki method, you have to understand the ecosystem that you're living in. What, what are the types of forests here? Is it, mm -hmm. what are the, what are the major trees in this, in these forests? Are they oaks? Are they beech? Are they, in, in Japan, they had, you know, laurel, evergreen laurel trees were the main tree in a lot of the forests there. Um, so you have to, you have to learn that. Maybe you don't even know what one of those looks like. And so you, you, you get to learn what it looks like to identify it, to learn what sort of species grow with it. So it's, yeah, it, I, I, I think the, the lesson in the Netherlands is what, and their main goal is, I mean, the main goal is connecting kids and people generally to nature. And the secondary goal is restoring ecosystems. But the idea is that once you connect people to nature, then that sort of infuses the whole culture and society and people start paying more attention. And, and so the second goal is, is met automatically that way. But, um, but so I think the lesson there was like, no, we can do this at a smaller size and we're, we're still gonna get a lot of really positive results. Yeah. And that's, I think, a great thing people can do is, uh, again, in my research for this, found out that by two days I missed the deadline. The city of Hamilton gives out native tree species and will mm -hmm. drop them off planted on your yard uh, for it's like a week long thing every year. And it's oh, wow. these are native species to this area that we need more of to improve our canopy. If you want one, sign up. And if it's appropriate, we'll drop one into a hole on your yard. And while it's not a whole ecosystem, it's a great start and you don't have to dig the hole. So I feel like it's yeah. kind of win-win that way. Yeah. And on that note, and I'm trying to find the term and I cannot because I'm super professional, um, talking about the types of vegetation that, that was, there's a specific term for it, looking at what kind of vegetation could be there if humans weren't and then oh, right. identify those. Yeah, so that's the, the idea of potential natural vegetation. There it and is. it's exactly what you said. If, you know, in any given site in your backyard, if if the city had never grown up and the house built and the yard planted in lawn, whatever, what, what would be growing there? Um, what would be growing there now according to the current climate conditions, according to the soil, according to the topography? And so that that is kind of like the research that you get into when you're doing the Milwaukee method is trying to figure out what that is. Um, and it's, it's not necessarily obvious given how transformed our cities are. Mm -hmm. And so what, what Milwaukee suggests and what all the groups that I talked to have done is they've built a team so they've connected with universities, botanical societies, local ecologists to, you know, to, to, to figure that out. And so, so yeah, so that's a, that's a really important part is you can't, you can't necessarily just wing it um, because the, the method is, is, you know, it's a very specific method that, that trying to figure out what the nat natural potential natural vegetation is, is a, is a scientific question. It's, yeah. you know, so it involves really thinking it through and figuring it out with with um you know lists of what the native species are but then understanding what the your site conditions are and and what species would be growing under those particular conditions 
Yeah, and it's 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 a great point to really reach out locally or find experts. And I think there's there's always naturalist clubs or nearby universities or someone. If there's a creek, just follow the creek, and eventually you'll find someone in waders doing research. <laughs> it feels like a rule in the yeah. world. Yeah. Um, and to find out what you would want, because for me, like I love birch trees. I think they are beautiful. I love the group of seven paintings of birch trees. I want birch bark everywhere. Mm. Um, and for me, if I could plant a tree in the yard right now, it would be a birch. And it's fascinating then to see that notification from the city saying, we want you to plant trees. And these are the ones that would be beneficial. And it's dogwood and sapphires and kind of medium height trees with lots of early buds. Um, and I, I don't know, I haven't looked into it at all. I would presume those are also very much the native species of the area and what's necessary to help with that connectivity. Yeah. Well, and so here's another thing about the Milwaukee method is that when you're saying potential natural vegetation and that potential natural vegetation is a, is a forest, is a hardwood forest, then those, those species are all, those are climax, climax shade tolerant species. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of trees are, are not shade tolerant. They like to grow in, in open areas where there's lots of sun yeah. and they don't, you know, they don't have to fight for, fight for sunlight. So, yeah. So if you were going to plant something in a, in an open area, like one in the middle of the lawn, you could plant a climax species or you could plant a more of a pioneer species and both would do well. But in the, in, in a Milwaukee forest, you, you're trying to create the climax forest that's going to kind of self -replic replicate. And so you want to create, you, you want to plant those shade tolerant climax species from the beginning. And then they're, they're, they'll be the only ones that can then germinate and grow in that shade that you've created. So mm -hmm it'll be kind of this stable, more or less stable community. Yeah, we've got um, uh, rows of Sharon and dogwood in the yard. And those are two examples of, uh, I, I don't know if they're classified as trees or bushes. I, I am terrible at my classifications and all that because I'm not a scientist uh, and cannot memorize things, but they are both trees. You know, they, they are not too tall, but create a lot of shade. And after a storm, you can go out and see, it looks like a mini forest, ironically, mm -hmm. under the rows of Sharon, because all of the little twigs start poking up and they look like oh. tiny little trees coming up um, because oh, wow. they just propagate so rapidly. Oh, uh, wow. And I, I had to go to war with dogwood under the deck this year. Um, but oh, wow. uh, yeah, <laughs> so they're, they're interesting choices. Um, yeah, yeah. I'd like to wrap with a quote you included from Miyawaki and sort of ask what your impressions of it are and if it's maybe sort of the a general message you want because it, it's one of these quotes that for me jumped off the page and is going to stay with me mm. um and to read it it is nothing is greater than living he said in a 2012 interview at the age of 84 then what is the reason for living it is to do something anyone can do anywhere for our tomorrow i want everyone to do what they can do I will plant trees for the next 30 years for myself, my loved ones, for Japan, for the future of the 7 billion people living on this planet. Let's plant trees together. Uh, and for me, that's a very chills on my arms. This is mm -hmm. an impressive individual who has done impressive things. 
do you get that response from it? And do you think that is sort of the, the, the theme of the book that you set out to write? That this is yeah. not about doom and despair, but about hope and about what we can all do to make tomorrow better? Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I feel like uh, there's that quote and there's a few others of his that no matter how many times I read them or hear them, I still get almost get a little choked up because mm-hmm. um, they're there's it's such a beautiful big vision i mean he um yeah like like we were talking about earlier he 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 says it's not it's irresponsible to just to just be be in despair you know it's um we owe it to each other to to try to um to do what we can and and yeah and then this is just such a it's such a meaningful thing to do because mm-hmm. it brings people together and it brings people together with nature. And there's, there's so much hope and there's so much promise and, and there's so much health <laughs> in, in that. To learn more about Hannah Lewis and her work, check out hannahlewis.org. You can find Mini Forest Revolution through chelseagreen.com, Chapters Indigo, Amazon, or your local bookseller. Links are available in the show notes and at DefenderRadio.com. I want to thank Hannah for her time. I was fascinated by the subject matter of this book, and I really believe that Hannah has shared a story that can help transform the modern world in positive ways. I encourage you to read it. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you want to help more people find Defender Radio and The Switch, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just sharing your favorite episode on social media. It really helps get more people listening and working together on solutions for wildlife and the planet. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears. Thank you for listening. <laughs>